Keith here, inviting you to imagine that Live from the Lounge is actually live and that you're with us in person. Imagine. you got a drink in your hand, you're swaying to the music, laughing a little, and we come to that moment in the show where we pass around a hat and ask you to share with us as we've shared with you. How much do you imagine you'd put in that hat? Ten bucks? Twenty? A hundred? If you like what you hear, consider dropping a little something into our virtual hat at livefromtheloungepodcast.com. That's livefromtheloungepodcast.com. The donate button's right there at the top of the landing page. It's quick, it's easy, and it's greatly appreciated. Hey there. Welcome to the lounge. I hope you're basking in the last few days of summer vacation. The beaches are still open, the days are still long, the weather is still warm. And wait, is that a peach cobbler? Don't mind if I do. Whether your final summer fling includes a trip to the ocean, the mountains, or just to the kitchen for a plate of snacks, we hope you'll take time to lounge with us for the next hour or so. We've got stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you groove with the rhythms of the season. This month's theme is Back to Work, and I'll chat with UCLA labor historian Tobias Higby about the origins of Labor Day, the holiday that marks the unofficial end of summer. Double Batch Daddy will be along later to share a new version of an old worker's song, For our dinner and a movie this month, we'll share with you a family film that's sure to stir your feelings and pair it with a dish that'll make you feel all warm inside. The Lounge Players are back with another installment of their series of Modern Fables. John Ballinger brings us his take on a pair of songs for the season. And a little later, we'll talk about the transformative power of melancholy. So, here we are. It's September already. Hard to believe the summer is coming to a close and the year is starting to wind down. Here in Southern California, the sun rose at 629 and it'll set this evening at 712. We're a little over two weeks out from the autumnal equinox. And after that, the night begins to overtake the day. Yes, soon we'll fall back to standard time. Or... If we're coming out of daylight saving time, does that mean we're starting daylight spending time, or is it daylight wasting time? Whatever we choose to call it. The fact is, there's no avoiding the phrase that's been heard on many a film set as the sun passes through magic hour. We're losing the light, people! On the wheel of the year, this is the time when the Holly King, that jolly old elf with his white beard and the sprig of holly in his hair, rises to power, and we witness the slow fading of the green and virile Oak King. The long, warm days grow shorter and cooler. The big green trees begin to change color and eventually lose their leaves altogether. After the blistering heat of August, the days begin to cool, and we head back to work or school, with renewed purpose. It's a busy month, September, and much like its sister month, March, it's a time of transition. Only, rather than bursting forth from shelter to start planting, September is filled with the hustle and bustle of the harvest, of wrapping things up before it's too cold to be outside anymore. September, they say, is just springtime in reverse, In Japanese Buddhist philosophy, the land of the afterlife is thought to lie due west. So the setting sun has special significance on the equinox, and the observant Buddhist might make a trip to the family shrine to spruce it up this time of year. In Chinese and Vietnamese cultures, the moon festival is celebrated, and families gather to share a meal and eat moon pies. After the meal, they may head outside to stare at the full moon and remember family members who have passed on. And in the Jewish culture, they observe the high holy days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. We'll talk more about these holidays later, but they bookend a powerful time of self-reflection and atonement. There's a certain thrill to the beginning of fall. The colors are spectacular, 
the weather is perfect, and it's always great to be back out in the field, in the office, or on campus with familiar people. Fall is when we reap the rewards of the careful planning and hard work we did in the winter and spring. It's a time of abundance. But as we harvest our crop, it's right to recognize that we're coming to the end of the growing season. Soon the stalks will be bare, and we'll turn them over into the soil and say goodbye to the little shoots we celebrated poking up through the soil last spring. Secure in the knowing that these spent stocks will help to nourish and bring up new life next year. It's a bittersweet time, Autumn, and we'll start our lounge today with a bittersweet song to welcome it. Here's John Ballinger singing September Song. Oh, it's a long, long while From May to December But the days grow short When you reach September When the autumn to flame One hasn't got time Thank you, John. Absolutely gorgeous. You're making this transition extremely difficult. This month, the Lounge Players returned to their series of modern fables. Back in February, you heard the tale of the unloved man. Today's fable is about another modern man, and it begins, interestingly enough, in an office. Help me understand the schedule risk. Well, the launch is forecast to extend three weeks beyond the target. Three weeks? Yes. That's not what it says in the deck. Really? No, the deck says three and a half weeks. I'll make sure to check with Jody. I think that is a mistake. Okay. 
Let's put her on some of these deliverables. If you turn to the last page of the deck, you will see the mitigation efforts we are proposing, as well as the costs associated. Early one morning, there was a man who woke up and found himself laying in bed. He had been dreaming, and he was happy to be awake, not because he was having a bad dream, but rather because his dream was incredibly boring. He got out of bed, showered, ate a muffin, drank some coffee, and drove to work. At work, he had a meeting with his manager. Help me understand the schedule risk. Well, the launch is forecast to extend three weeks beyond the target. Three weeks? Yes. That's not what it says in the deck. Really? No, the deck says three and a half weeks. I'll make sure to check with Jody. And so it went. Every night, the man's dreams were an eerie reflection of the minutiae of his actual life. For this reason, he was known as the man with boring dreams. One night, the man with boring dreams came home from work. He made himself dinner. He watched a portion of an action movie on TV. This movie featured lots of explosions, lots of yelling, and many terrible car accidents. The movie was stupid, but it affected the man deeply. The stupid movie was dangerous and loud, unlike his life. Lately, he had been feeling very tired when coming home from work, and he often fell asleep watching TV. To his surprise, on this night, he was not particularly sleepy. He wondered if there was a way he could consciously influence his brain to take him to more fantastical places in his dreams. And so he turned off the TV, he sat down on the floor, he closed his eyes, and he began to meditate. Quick, get in the garage! That's what I call life in the fast lane, ladies and gentlemen. This baby's got to be worth at least a quarter mil. Hey, you. Me? Yeah. What's your name? Oh, sure. My name is, um... I'm Jojo. That's Nicodemus. Hey. Teddy Bear. What's up? And Waxy. Whoa. Nice to meet you all. Hi. I haven't seen anyone ride as hard as you, man. Really? Well, gosh, thanks. We were going really fast. That's right, baby. In fact, I felt several times that we were needlessly endangering the lives of innocent bystanders. But at the same time, what a rush! Welcome to the family. Man, I would love to get you in a room for a few solid hours and just dig into a hardcore SWOT analysis. A SWOT analysis? Yeah, man. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and... And threats. Yes, I'm familiar with the SWOT analysis. Forgive me, but just so I'm clear, you steal cars and then travel the world racing them at ungodly speeds up and down the freeways, right? That's us, baby. But that don't mean this family don't take the time to evaluate the value proposition. No, of course not. Come on, man. Let's jam on some deliverables. What do you say, Waxy? Yeah! Let's get this bitch on the calendar! The man opened his eyes and emerged from his meditation. He looked at the clock and noted that one minute had passed. It was more or less the exact same amount of time that had passed in the scenario that he had just meditated. The man felt despair. There was no escape from the tedium of his life. And worse, the fact that even his dreams were boring probably meant that he was boring and that something was deeply wrong with him. He was living a half-life, a shadow of a life, and his dreams proved it. He blinked to see if a tear would fall down his cheek. No, he was too boring to even cry about it. Instead, he sighed. He rose to his feet and went to the bathroom. He brushed his teeth and took his nightly pills before going to bed, falling asleep, and having another boring dream. That weekend, the man with boring dreams had lunch with his sister. He shared his concerns with her. <sighs> I'm feeling very depressed. Even my fantasy life is boring. Everything I touch turns to tedium. I might as well be at work 24 hours a day. Oh my gosh, speaking of work, I had the freakiest experience the other day. 
I was trying to leave at 5.30 like I usually do, but I just kept getting hung up by these bizarre occurrences, like Sandy dropped by my desk to chat, and then I was halfway to my car, and I realized I didn't have my commuter mug, so I go all the way back to the office to get it, and then I had to use the bathroom. I ended up leaving about 20 minutes late. Oh. I'm sorry that happened. No, that's not the point. The point is, I pull onto the freeway and a huge accident has just happened. Was everyone okay? I don't know. But don't you see? If I had left on time, there's a good possibility that I would have been in that accident. Huh. You really think so? Yes. I mean, I actually think my commuter bug saved my life. And then I remembered I almost didn't buy it because it had a tiny crack on the bottom, but I liked the design for some strange reason. And then I went ahead and bought it. And now I know why. Can you believe that even happened? The man with boring dreams actually could believe it. Why wouldn't he? He nodded and sipped his iced coffee. His sister believed all experiences are inherently connected and that we affect and influence each other in profound ways that defy the conventional rules of physics. As a result, even when she experienced the most innocuous events, she often felt that the world was trying to tell her something. For this reason, she was known as the woman who insisted on deriving meaning from everything. But enough about me. You have boring dreams. I wonder why. I don't know. As I said, it's very depressing. I mean, a dream. That's your subconscious set loose, right? That seems feasible to me. So you're setting your subconscious loose and it's taking you to the office? It is, yes. Wow. What do you think it means? I don't know. The elements of dreams are generally symbolic, but with you, they don't seem to be. In your dream, the office clearly represents... An office. What do you mean by symbolic? Oh, well, I had a dream last night that I'm, I'll be honest, I'm still processing it. Oh, yeah? I dreamt that there was a woman who lived in the swimming pool behind my apartment building. She was a mystical creature called a narf. A narf? Yes. She was sent by her people to find a great writer and to inspire him to write a book that would be read by a future president who would lead human civilization to peace and prosperity. So anyway, I'm pretty sure she was a symbol of my adolescent self. Got it. Then there was a man with one giant arm who was her guardian against these creatures that were a combination of wolves and bushes or something. And what was he a symbol of? I don't know yet. And then... At the end of my dream, this giant eagle came and took the narf away to safety. Wait, in your dream, did you have a building manager with a really bad stutter? Yes. Did he look like Paul Giamatti? Yes. Yes. How did you know? I think what you're describing is the film Lady in the Water, written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan. I am? I think it was on TNT last night. Maybe you were watching it and... You confused your dream with the plot of that movie? Huh. I did fall asleep with the TV on. You're telling me that's an actual film that got produced? I'm afraid so. Some of us even paid money to see it. Okay, but the point remains, it was a dreamlike story, right? And the narf and the guy with the giant arm, clearly these are symbolic. Sure, sure. I mean, it wasn't a dream, I guess, but... Okay, wait. So this is an actual dream I had. I was going on a trip and the taxi was outside waiting for me. I was going to miss my flight, but I was still packing and I couldn't find my shoes. I couldn't find my toothbrush, which of course represents my constant feeling that I'm incomplete. I'm missing something. I couldn't find what else. I couldn't find my bathing suit. As the man with boring dreams listened to his sister's dream, a feeling crept over him. And I go down to get my taxi he was and I bored. The door and I the taxi. He was really bored. His sister's dream was boring. In fact, her dream was almost as boring as his dreams. It was almost as boring as M. Night Shyamalan's Lady in the Water. 
As he sunk deeper into his boredom, struggling to follow the painstaking detail of his sister's description, another feeling washed over him. Relief. He finished his lunch. He said goodbye to his sister. He drove home. He went for a walk. He read a book. He ate dinner. He watched some television. He fell asleep. And what he dreamt didn't mean anything. L.A. Animal Services is more than a place to find your next pet. With six locations throughout the city of Los Angeles, L.A. Animal Services also offers support services for pet families, like the Pet Food Pantry and monthly advice panels for dog, cat, and rabbit guardians. Another thing L.A. Animal Services offers is a chance for animal lovers to make a difference by getting involved. You can have a positive impact on animals in our community by adopting or by joining the team as a foster parent or a volunteer. Find information on how to access services and how to get involved at LAAnimalServices.com. Where do holidays come from? That's a question we ask a lot around here. Most of us are probably familiar with the origins of Christmas, Thanksgiving, and President's Day, but others are less well-known. Memorial Day and Veterans Day spring to mind. Aren't they kind of the same thing? The answer is no, they're not. Every once in a while, new holidays get added. Juneteenth became a federal holiday just this year, and others get deleted or refined. I'm looking at you, Christopher Columbus. Labor Day is a national holiday that marks the unofficial end of summer. And as a proud member of the Screen Actors Guild, the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, and the Writers Guild, I've always held my head up high the first weekend in September as a proud blue-collar entertainment laborer whose work is covered by union contracts. This month, I used some of my union connections, thanks Linda Dow, to get in touch with Tobias Higby, a professor of history and labor studies at UCLA. We talked about the origin of Labor Day in America, and I discovered it wasn't what I thought it was at all. Folks, if they're anything like me, um, don't really understand the origins of Labor Day. Labor Day is traditionally the end of summer, and it's a day we take off, and that can seem very frivolous to people. But in fact, having a federal holiday, a paid day off, hopefully, is is an important marker uh, and a win for working people. So George Pullman, you know, how he figures in this is really kind of in the negative. Who is George Pullman? Pullman was uh, a very inventive man who uh, didn't come from wealth. His father was a carpenter and an inventor. uh, And uh, he himself took some of these inventions and made his money on uh, the process of moving houses. And as railroads were coming through, not just Chicago, but other cities, often um, they needed to move buildings aside so that the railroads and canals could come through. So he made his money initially there, and then he went into building uh, railroad cars. He built freight cars and um, what became known as Pullman Palace cars. These were very fancy, elaborate um, sleeping cars and, and lounge cars that um, the mainly wealthy in their long train rides uh, would pay extra to get a bed in and to sit in comfortable seats and be served by um, African-American porters in a way that Pullman believed would replicate what he thought of as the charm of the Old South. So these Pullman cars, especially the palace cars, they were rented or leased out to the railroad companies, uh, not just the cars, but also the employees. So it was like a it was like a subcontracted operation that was attached to a passenger train run by another company. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, quite profitable. And uh, um, he became very wealthy in order to manufacture these cars. He didn't just have a factory in Chicago. He created a city. That's right. 
named after himself, called Pullman, Illinois. Can you talk a little bit about the concept behind this factory town of Pullman, Illinois? Uh, Pullman had his factories in Detroit originally. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was looking for a place where he could expand and control the workforce. So he uh, buys up land south of Chicago and establishes his own town with the factory, uh, the Pullman Works, but also housing, a church, stores, uh, a hotel, all of it owned by the Pullman company. So none of the workers who lived there could buy their own home. They had to rent it from the company. You know, at first it was seen as a model city. Uh, it was kind of, he was seen as a real, almost, um, you know, a hero. And in fact, a lot of workers, including organized workers, uh, believed that there was a way to harmonize the interests of employers and workers in the late 19th century. Unfortunately, what happens is there's a, uh, one of the largest depressions, economic depressions uh, uh, known of, at that time began in 1893. And uh, in 1894, that's the deepest parts of it, facing some profitability problems, the Pullman Company uh, raises rents and food costs, etc., cetera, uh, but cuts the wages of the workers. Pullman owns the houses, the church, the store, the water. He also owns all the workers, essentially. He is paying them a certain wage, and then they're paying back to him their rent, their utilities, everything they buy at the store he's getting a cut of. So when he lowers their wages but doesn't lower any of the charges, what does that do to someone who's working in Pullman? Basically, you know, it's hardship, it's privation. And they recognized, as you suggested, that they were stuck in a situation that they believed was, as they would say, un-American and anti-democratic, because they were living in a situation where their employer was like a king. So there was the financial aspect of it, but there was also this, um, you know, cultural or ideological, if you will, uh, political dynamic in which workers who saw themselves as part of the American scene and, and believed in American democracy felt that it was deeply unfair that they should be uh, living in this situation at the fully at the will of one man. So the Pullman workers had their own union, and then they joined this big new union, the American Railway Union, that was led by Eugene Debs. In the late 19th century, as, as unions were evolving, many of them were occupationally specific. Uh, railroad engineers, railroad firemen, railroad brakemen, switch signal workers, things like that. So you could have many, many different unions in one industry. Uh, so the, the idea of the industrial union is you, um, you get everybody together, and through our solidarity, we'll be able to bring these large corporations to heal in a way that we couldn't separately. So how did the involvement of the ARU shape the trajectory of this strike? Well, so the ARU had been uh, involved in a series of uh, strikes that were successful. So lots of people were joining, uh, thinking that it, it was sort of the vehicle of their uh, economic aspirations. And the, the Pullman workers joined as well and appealed to the union uh, to, um, to boycott Pullman cars. What does that mechanically look like on the ground? To boycott Pullman cars on the rails? You know, engineers, the, the people who are uh, coupling the cars together, handling the cars in the rail yards, they would not touch the Pullman cars. They would not move trains that had pull Pullman cars on them. The only way they could do that is through the solidarity with the ARU, where you had these uh, the rail yard workers and the, the people driving the trains. What was the effect? So the effect was to cripple rail traffic nationally because Chicago was the epicenter uh, of the rail network. And, um, you know, for a moment led to a kind of incredibly heady sense of power by the workers, the idea that all wealth comes from labor. So naturally, 
this was a pretty serious challenge to the power of employers. And what was the Pullman response? What the workers were calling for actually was rather, uh, we would think, not terribly radical. They were asking for arbitration. And um, he refused because this was a challenge to his authority. And um, that led then to the, uh, the larger boycott. So then it became a question of all the railroad uh, companies through the general managers association. And they then appealed to the federal government right. uh, that the federal government needed to step in and stop this action. This injunction imposed by the federal government, what does it say? It says it's illegal to interfere with rail traffic. And of course, the the union um, ignores that. Often when you go on strike, you are doing something that is perceived as uh, illegal or uh, beyond the bounds of um, you know normal behavior, but that's that's how these strikes raise the stakes. And um, to deal with that, then the uh, federal government and the general managers association kind of came up with a a, a nice trick that uh, would uh, ultimately cripple the boycott. They would attach a U.S. mail train. A car to every train that had a Pullman car on it. And if the workers then uh, boycotted or, or stopped or interfered with the train that had a Pullman car on it, they were interfering with the passage of the U.S. mail. The workers didn't stop boycotting and interfering with the trains. And the federal government then brought the army back from the West where they had been suppressing uh, indigenous uprisings and encamped them in Grant Park in Chicago to suppress the uprising of uh, railroad workers. That then stimulated a kind of upsurge and resentment on the part of the large working class population of Chicago. And the strike and boycott kind of got beyond the railroad workers per se. How many troops are we talking about here? Thousands. It's a pretty violent era. Uh, and people are getting shot all the time by National Guard, by police, and here by the Army. And, and of course, the Army is, you know, they're sort of a seasoned group of people who have just been out, you know, gunning down folks on the Great Plains. So, yeah. This was the summer of 1894. Yeah. These troops were ordered by the president, Grover Cleveland, to be yeah. in Grant Park and to put down this rebellion um, which they successfully do. Can you talk a little bit about how that led to the implementation of Labor Day? Working people had been taking Labor Day before this time. In fact, there were earlier ones in the early 1880s. But uh, the trades unions had been, you know, looking at naming a day uh at the end of the summer, because it was a nice, you know, in between July 4th and, and Thanksgiving, you know. So the concept of Labor Day had been exi- had existed and various central labor councils had had uh, passed resolutions promoting it. And so uh, when Cleveland, you know, issued his statement saying this would be a, a federal holiday for federal workers at first in 1894, that then became Labor Day. You know, the history of holidays is we look back on it and we think, oh, well, the federal government declares a holiday and everybody then takes it. That's a relatively uh, a post-World War II concept. These holidays emerged more organically at the local and the state level. And, um, you know, eventually they become a kind of um, feature of the economy. Now, I think today we're back in a world where lots of people don't get to take Labor Day. You know, if you work in a convenience store, you're not taking Labor Day off. If you work in a restaurant, you're probably going to have to work. Um, so uh, we sort of returned to a, a world where, you know, only some get to take the holidays. How much do you think that Labor Day was a response to the uprising in Pullman? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, by naming Labor Day, it was a that was a politically potent move and something that would win him uh, support and votes. It's optics, as we would call it today. Rush with one hand, offer a, you know, fig leaf with another hand. 
It's often said that there are makers and takers in this world. I have to agree. There are those who make the food we eat when we go out, those who make our beds when we stay in hotels, those who make cars and scooters and computers and rocket ships, and there are those who make package deliveries to our front doors. Here in LA, we make entertainment. All any of us want is a chance to make what we make and to make a fair living doing it. To all the true makers out there, we salute you. Here's an old labor song with a new twist by Double Batch Daddy. I don't want your greenback dollar. I don't want your diamond ring. All I want is your love, darling. Won't you take me back again? I don't want your millions, mister. I don't want your diamond ring. All I want is a right to live, mister. Oh, give me back my job again. I know you have a landy, mister. The money Welcome back. It's the Dinner and a Movie segment. I am here in the lounge today with my lovely and talented wife, Ann Claus Farley. Hello. Nice to be here. It's good to have you back. Once again, I think I have to mention that uh, I don't think there's anybody in the world who I've seen more movies with than you. Yep, it's true. Also, I don't think there's anybody in the world who I've had more dinners with than you. Oh, that's probably true, too. <laughs> and we've got a big announcement. A couple of weeks ago, you started as adjunct lecturer in the costume department at the University of Southern California. Yeah. How's that been? Exciting. I love um, sharing what I do. And I also learn, I love to learn like uh, what's going on in our uh, 20-year-old set. It makes me feel more in touch and it only improves my art as well. 
So today we went on looking for a family movie, and we'll talk a little bit about what makes a great family movie um, as we sort of move through today's movie choice, um, which is from the Disney Pixar universe. Uh, it's a beautiful movie about the development of the psyche, really, uh, and it's called Inside Out. At the beginning of Inside Out, we meet a little tiny baby by the name of Riley, and we meet Riley's emotions. Joy shows up first and helps Riley to fall in love with her parents. Uh, but soon after that, sadness comes along. Babies do cry. Uh, fear, disgust, and anger round out the mix. And in Riley's mind, memories are like little marbles that are collected throughout the day, that are identified by emotions. And then at the end of the day, most of those marbles get shoved off to long-term memory, but some of them that are especially powerful uh, become core memories. And those core memories uh, anchor the personality. And the way that they indicate this in the film is through these little islands that are formed in the psyche. Uh, and for Riley, we see Hockey Island, because she loves to play hockey, Goofball Island, Friendship Island, Honesty, and Family Island. And Joy is essentially running the show until the big move. At 11 years old, Riley moves to San Francisco and nothing goes right. Dad's job is stressful. The house is small and old. And pretty soon, sadness starts to infiltrate and change the memories that um, Riley is experiencing. She even makes one fond memory of the family skating on a lake together, so filled with sadness that it becomes a core memory. And Joy can't have this. So she attempts to grab the new memory before it gets installed at the core. Sadness and Joy have a push and pull, and eventually they knock all the core memories loose and get sucked up and deposited way down deep in the uh, land of long-term memory. And this shuts down Friendship Island, Hockey Island, they all go offline. And Joy and Sadness have to figure out how to make their way back to the control center to save things before everything goes completely awry. On the way, we get to meet Riley's imaginary friend, Bing Bong. We ride the train of thought, visit imagination land, experience abstraction, go to the dream factory, and we take a trip through the subconscious. And ultimately... Uh, Joy has to learn that families can come together around sadness as much as joy. And that's our story. That's the story of Inside Out. What I want you to talk about is the difference between this movie, which I really think is a family movie, and how that compares to what we often think of as family movies, but are really kids' movies. A family movie is a movie that um, serves both the adult and the child so that it's working on definitely two planes of understanding so that there are jokes that the parents get and then there are jokes that the kids get and then hopefully you're able to communicate and converse about the story. This one is very complex. I think this movie serves the adult in a way where a lot, not all of us have the same life and have had the same journey. So I think a lot of adults may not even be in touch with their emotions. And so that this movie serves as an idea of like, hey, you know, this is just a core idea about what emotions are like and where they come from possibly, uh, giving you that theatrical picture. It's a really good conversation point, I think, if your family is at that place of being able to discuss emotions. I came from a family where we were not allowed to have emotions. I had too many family members, so many siblings, that I think my mom's idea of control was to eliminate emotions. So by the time I left home, I was struggling to even understand what this is. So if this movie came along for me at 16, it would have really helped me understand like what I'd been going through. It's um, a beautiful part be of the movie that. that very much mirrors what you're saying, is that the risk to Riley, and at one point she actually gets to the place where she feels nothing. This trauma can take Riley to a place where she loses interest in family, friends, being a goofball, playing hockey. But the beauty of it and the hope of it is that those emotions and those connections can be restored. 
I can't recommend this movie enough. If you've got kids, and even with small kids, they're still going to have a good time. There's enough goofy Disney action to carry them through it. But if you've got a kid, you know, 9 to 12, 13, it's a really good movie, I think, to sit down and watch as a family. This is a heavy layered animated feature. There's lots of deep surprises underneath there. So, in celebration of the family movie, we thought about having a family dish that would go along with this. And what greater comfort food could there be than macaroni and cheese? Oh my gosh. It's the ultimate comfort food of all time, I think. I really want to make a difference between boxed macaroni and cheese, which I'll just call crackeroni and cheese. Oh, come on. Don't diss it. I've got a good story for you about that. (laughs) Tell me. My mom was at a doctor's appointment, and she left on the counter 12 boxes of Kraft macaroni and cheese. That was going to be our dinner that night. And so we decided to get out the big pan, the big pot, and we, we started making the macaroni and cheese and realized how hilarious it was that it was so much mac and cheese. And then I don't know who started it, but then a food fight happened. And then macaroni and cheese ended everywhere around the room, like everywhere. It was like like a bad disease all over with cheese splotches (laughs) everywhere. And and then we afterwards were like, oh, my gosh, we got to clean this up. So we cleaned it all up. And two days later, we're having dinner. Mom is back and we're eating quietly. And all of a sudden, like big chunks of macaroni and cheese from the ceiling fell down onto the table. My mom was like, what the heck is that? And it was macaroni and cheese. There you go. It sticks. It's like an art project. (laughs) (laughs) Very funny. But the beauty of macaroni and cheese is that macaroni and cheese from scratch is essentially boxed macaroni and cheese, just removing the powdered crack and just putting normal cheese in there. So if you boil pasta, add milk and butter, but then instead of peeling open that packet and dumping in that processed cheese stuff, you throw in a handful of real cheese, that's macaroni and cheese. Shredded cheddar, Mexican cheese, mozzarella, they all work beautifully for the dish. But I'm going to say texture is everything for kids. And sometimes the sticky cheese isn't like something a kid wants. They want the smooth powder thing. Once so. they've had it, that's all they want. Well, okay. Yeah. But the beauty of macaroni and cheese, though, is that it, it can be that simple or the sky's the limit. And I went and did some searching and it got my mouth watering pretty severely. I ate some while you were recording something else. It, that's how much it inspired me. I found one with Gruyere cheese and Mm. sharp cheddar. Mm. From there, I went for uh, chicken bacon ranch mac and cheese. I've had that. It's good. How about a uh, smoky chipotle bacon smoked gouda? Oh, yeah. Panko crumbs on top for a little crispiness. Yeah, that sounds great. And then if you want to go next level, of course, we're going to the baked ziti. But then you're basically just adding sausage and tomato along with the Italian cheeses, mozzarella, ricotta, and Parmesan. It's kind of a pizza casserole at that point. Yeah, it gets complicated for people like me who are gluten-free and dairy-free. Sure. But there are a lot of vegan options to play with. And if you're uh, one of our keto friends, this is a great dish. You just substitute, you know, zucchini noodles or um, cauliflower. Uh, My new appreciation for a zucchini versus cauliflower is I find that the zucchini is heartier. Don't cook it too much. Don't make it too soft and mushy. Oh, Try to keep some, of that, keep some of that crunch in there. So all sorts of options for mac and cheese. Share your recipes with us. We'll share these recipes on our website. Uh, go try some macaroni and cheese and get the family together and uh, take a look at Inside Out. Yeah, so much, so much food for thought in this movie. Clever. Yeah, right. That's what you just did. (laughs) That's because you're at USC now. (laughs) My initial idea for our September podcast was to talk about getting back to work. The month starts with Labor Day, after all. I imagined an exhortation to shake off the laziness of the dog days of summer and start getting ready for the harvest. 
the students among us are back to school, and hopefully the rest of us are returning from a recharge, ready to jump back into the busyness of our lives. We're heading into another big push leading up to the harvest festivals of October, and by the end of November, the year will be winding down and we'll be giving thanks for the abundance we've engendered through careful planning, planting, and tending of our talents and resources throughout the year. But now, it's all hands on deck. Time to crack the whips and crack the books. Get back in the fields. Put your nose to the grindstone. It's time to work. It's also time to return to balance. The autumnal equinox is September 22nd, and the day and the night will once again be the same length. After that, we begin to experience the waning of light, fertility, and growth as we watch the long, warm days slowly fade into a chilly darkness. After the 22nd of September, the year is beginning, ever so slightly, to ride off into an early sunset. Soon, the trees will start to turn color as they begin their process of settling down for a long winter's nap. It won't be long before the abundant green expanses of April and May will be replaced with dusty brown soil, quietly waiting for a blanket of snow to descend and cover it as it sleeps. But no, I thought as these notions started to take hold in my mind, autumn is a thrilling time of change. It's time to celebrate a return to learning and hard work as the weather finally cools down a bit. The thrill of the harvest is at hand. So, I went in search of some facts about Labor Day, thinking that would cheer me up. I imagined that I'd be able to relate to you the inspirational story of the labor movement that brought us the 40-hour work week, weekends off, paid holidays and vacations, and a standard of living that by the middle of the 20th century was the envy of the world. What I actually discovered, as you've heard, is that Labor Day was created in 1894 as a sort of consolation prize to make up for the horrors and the 30 deaths inflicted upon workers by the National Guard of the United States in cooperation with and in defense of the Pullman Corporation of Illinois. And then, after having my son home from college for the past 18 months, we sent him off again. My daughter resumed going out with her friends, and my wife, Anne, just started a new job as an adjunct lecturer in the theater department at USC. Suddenly, the house, once full of people planning for their upcoming freedom, is empty. And here I sit, as I often do, alone in my little soundproof booth. Only now, I'm alone in the whole house. There's no one sitting just outside the studio door eating a sandwich in the dining room playing with the dogs in the living room or chatting with extended family on the phone. It's just me, alone with my thoughts. And I find my thoughts returning to the harvest, which is also known as the reaping, which leads to thoughts of the grim reaper. And it starts to sink in that the season of growth is over and the withering is about to begin. We'll rip the last few ears of corn from the stalks before we cut them down and burn them to ash. The last tender peaches will soon be plucked, and the trees will lose their leaves, and we will cut them back. Sweet watermelon, plums, and nectarines make way for bitter broccoli, Brussels sprouts, and beets. Yes, my friends, we're starting to fall. And it strikes me that part of the joy of bringing this podcast to you has been tied up with the joy of growth. Remember, we started at the darkest night of the year by lighting candles and bringing evergreens into our homes to remind ourselves that it wouldn't be dark forever. And we watched as the days grew longer and the promise of spring came to pass, eventually leading to the explosive heat and growth of the summer months. Sure, we paid passing attention to the fact that the days started to get shorter in July and August, but the fact that we're about to face the season of darkness again 
is staring us in the face as we journey through the month of September. If we're really serious about grooving with the rhythms of the season, then we need to be just as mindful of grooving with the withering and winding down of fall as we were with the thrilling ramping up of spring. Which brings me to the concept of melancholy. How to describe melancholy without descending into depression? Melancholy embraces, even celebrates, the approaching darkness and inevitable withering of the fall. Depression, on the other hand, sees withering as the way things always are, always were, and always will be. Melancholy hangs in. Depression checks out. Melancholy marvels at the colors of autumn leaves, knowing that it's every aspen's last hurrah before they shed their glorious plumage and reveal the pale and scrawny selves they've been hiding since May. Melancholy rejoices in the moody storms, the smell of chilly moss after the rain, and warm apple cider that welcomes you when you come in from the cold. It's easy to wax poetical when speaking of melancholy. The poet William Butler Yeats writes beautifully about it, noting that she dwells with beauty, beauty that must die, and joy whose hand is ever at his lips bidding adieu, and aching pleasure nigh turning to poison while the bee mouth sips. Aye, in the very Temple of delight, veiled melancholy has her sovereign shrine, though seen of none, save him whose strenuous tongue can burst joy's grape against his palate fine. His soul shall taste the sadness of her might, and be among her cloudy trophies hung. But melancholy is more than a feeling, or rather, it's a feeling that, if it's honored, can inspire us to action. Our Jewish friends move through melancholy with the dual high holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah is the celebration of the new year on the Jewish calendar, and Yom Kippur arrives ten days later. Both are ceremonies that involve atonement for our sins or for making amends for all the mistakes we've made in the past year. One of the big rituals performed during Rosh Hashanah is called the Tashlich. It's a ceremony that invites the participants to symbolically throw off their sins, often by breaking off pieces of bread and tossing them into a body of water. It's a way of asking God to forgive you so you can start the new year with a nice clean slate. The next ten days are spent in reflection on the way our sins have affected other people. During this period, we're encouraged to seek out those who we've wronged in the past year and to ask them for their forgiveness and to recognize the ways we've been wronged by others and to offer them forgiveness too. The season culminates with Yom Kippur, a day of fasting prayer, and repentance that includes a recitation of a fairly exhaustive litany of our human shortcomings. After each individual sin is pronounced out loud, the attendees pound lightly on their chest as a way of showing remorse. It's a powerful way to literally shake the heart loose in order to really feel all the ways we fall short of our own ideals. The ceremony ends with a long, loud blast of a chauffeur, a ram's horn that's been turned into a kind of bugle. It's a wake-up call of sorts. It marks the end of this period of reflection on our shortcomings, and it invites us to move out of this extended period of introspection and get back to our lives. Of course, you don't need to be Jewish to take time this month to allow melancholy to lead you to and through an examination of your mistakes, but you're certainly welcome to follow their lead and take the actions necessary to forgive yourself, to ask others for forgiveness, and to be strong enough to forgive those who've hurt you. 
September is just a good time to allow melancholy to lead you to what 12-step programs call a searing personal inventory, and then to practice making amends for your mistakes and forgiving others for the mistakes they've made against you. We'll post the entire prayer that's recited at Yom Kippur on our website, but here's a little taste. We have been slothful and negligent. We have exalted our own reasonings above the truth. We have been wicked. We have corrupted. We have been abominable. We have strayed. We have betrayed. We have robbed. We have spoken slander. We have caused perversion. We have caused wickedness. We have sinned willfully. We have extorted. We have accused falsely. We have counseled evil. We have scorned. We have provoked. We have been perverse. We have rebelled. We have acted wantonly. We have been deceitful. We have persecuted. We have been obstinate and self-centered. It goes on and on. It's quite an exhaustive list, actually. But like melancholy, it eventually passes. It doesn't go on forever. Eventually, there's a wake-up call that comes to snap us out of our reverie. It's just a season, and seasons are meant to pass. The fact is, it's okay to fall. But as Rabbi Alan Mahler has written, falling isn't the worst sin. Staying on the floor is. So, have a nice fall, but don't forget to get back up again. There's still a lot of work to do.
And that's our lounge. If you like what you're hearing, won't you help us keep this podcast on the web with a donation? Head over to livefromthelouncepodcast.com. Click the donate button and share with us whatever you can afford. We also hope you'll make the most of the waning days of summer. But before you trade in your peach cobbler for an apple pie, here's the who did what. Our lounge is produced by Ann Claus Farley. John Ballinger is our musical director. You heard his arrangements of September Song and When the World is Running Down. John played bass, guitar, drums, keyboards, banjo, and a trio of clarinets on our lounge today. He also sang September Song, and you heard Laura Martin sing the police tune. John's album Blue Room is available on iTunes and Spotify. Double Batch Daddy arranged and performed I Don't Want Your Millions, Mister, with an extra rocket ship verse by yours truly. Double Batch Daddy is Cal on vocals and bass, Dutch on vocals and guitar, and Bax on drums. Be sure to check out their YouTube channel and keep an eye out for a new album from them next spring. Matt and Carol Olmos wrote The Man with Boring Dreams. You heard Matt as the narrator, Todd Merrill as The Man with Boring Dreams, Carol Olmos as the office manager, Ruby Farley as Jojo, and Selena Merrill as the woman who insisted on deriving meaning from everything. Many thanks to Tobias Higby, professor of history and labor studies at UCLA, for taking time to talk with me about the origins of Labor Day. If you're interested in learning more about labor history, Professor Higby is the author of Indispensable Outcasts, Hobo Workers and Community in the American Midwest, 1880-1930, and Labor's Mind, A History of Working-Class Intellectual Life. And I'm your host, Keith Farley. We'll be back in a month or so with another collection of stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you to learn, to love, to lounge.